Hello all, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. This time around, we cover the Battle of Britain and the life of Winston Churchill. Visit CassusBellyPodcast.com slash World War II for the podcast blog, and don't forget to like or review the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Now it's time for Episode 7, Their Finest Hour. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. As we discussed in episode 6, the Battle of Britain was a direct result of German preparations for Operation Sea Lion. With Goering in overall command of the eventual cross-channel invasion, the emphasis was placed on an extended preparatory bombardment. Fortunately for the English, Goering was not the same caliber intellect as say Guderian or Mannheim. Sure, he was confident in air power and correct in predicting that it would be instrumental in modern conflict, but he doesn't seem to have any kind of theory of air power. This is revealed in multiple ways. First, the fact that the Luftwaffe was, more or less, an extension of the army. The entire German Air Force was organized and designed to excel at tactical bombing. It had lots of excellent short-range fighter escort aircraft and medium tactical bombers, but it lacked heavy strategic bombers. Secondly, Goering didn't seem to have any actual plan for how to defeat Britain other than just throw aircraft at them. In fact, it seemed he approached the whole thing like a giant tactical exercise rather than the strategic mission that it was. The capitulation of Britain was, by definition, a strategic goal. Goering didn't have any strategy for achieving this objective, though. Rather than sending bombers escorted by fighters, he launched his fighters to engage in a massive aerial battle meant to destroy the RAF in the air. If his goal was to destroy the RAF to achieve air superiority, why did he not concentrate his efforts on that entirely? He could have concentrated his air power systematically destroying the RAF's ability to wage war. As we will see, the Luftwaffe approached that, but never embraced it. These problems were only magnified by the disadvantages heaped upon the attacker. For starters, the German Messerschmitts were not long-range escort fighters. They had only about an hour and a half of flying time. Considering it took 30 minutes to get to England one way, that left them with only about a half hour at best of tactical combat time. The RAF had the advantage of flying over home turf. Essentially, all of their flight time could be committed to actively patrolling or combat. What's more, if an RAF pilot were shot down over England, he could soon return to the fight. Luftwaffe pilots were captured and lost for the duration of the war if they were shot down. Thus, the Luftwaffe was fighting an uphill battle right from the very start. But we still haven't even mentioned the British secret weapon, radar. 
Had it not been for radio detection, the English would have had to rely on spotters along the coast or in the English Channel. Radar allowed the RAF spotters to see a hundred miles beyond their shores and lift the fog of war. Fighter Command could see German airgroups forming up over the Pata Calais and watch as they flew over the channel, all the while directing their own aircraft to intercept. Still though, the Luftwaffe very much had a fighting chance, and the RAF would have to give their all to repel the invaders. Goering had just over 2,500 aircraft at his disposal against the 1,400 British. His BF-109s were also superior to the British Hurricanes in speed and climb rate. As the battle began in June and July of 1940, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, head of RAF Fighter Command, had divided his forces into three commands. One in the south, one in the midlands, and one in the north. The southern command was by far the strongest though, with as many aircraft as the other two combined. In July, the first real sorties started to fly against British shipping in the channel. This actually was a pretty solid move by the Germans. By attacking shipping, they compelled Fighter Command to fly patrols to protect it and draw RAF pilots out over the sea. This not only negated their advantages in flying time, but also helped put the air forces on even footing in terms of lost pilots. Fighter Command soon got wise to the ploy though, and so stopped flying patrols out over the channel. Now, Goering would unleash his forces to target the RAF's ability to conduct operations directly. The Luftwaffe began flying combined fighter-bomber sorties targeting airfields. The first of these air offensives was launched on August 8th and ushered in the low point of the RAF for the war. For the next month, the pilots of Fighter Command would be pushed to the limit, flying as many as four sorties a day. As the enemy flew in, British fighters would take up positions and hurl themselves at them. The Hurricanes would take on the slower Heinkel bombers, while the Spitfires would take on the Messerschmitts. Their numerical disadvantage took a toll on the RAF, though, and the German tactic of attacking British aircraft as they took off and landed cost them dearly. The RAF was not defenseless, though, not by a long shot. Airfields bristled with anti-aircraft guns, and to counter low-flying German aircraft, they fired rocket-propelled clotheslines. Additionally, the intense fighting was taking a heavy toll on the Luftwaffe as well. In fact, in an attempted raid in the north by Luftfluchtfunf, stationed in Norway and Denmark, the Germans suffered so many casualties that the entire air fleet was essentially knocked out for the remainder of the battle. The Stukas also suffered terrible casualties throughout the island. Though perfect for tactical bombing in a friendly aerial environment, the Stuka was like a fish out of water in hostile skies, conducting strategic bombing. The main problem was that the Stuka was simply too slow and took too long to dive. While under escort, it was safe enough, but when it entered a dive at ten or 15,000 feet, it became vulnerable. Its Messerschmitt escorts were simply too fast and would zoom right past them if they attempted to follow in the dive, leaving them vulnerable to enemy aircraft. So that's just what the RAF did. They would wait until the Stukas entered their dive and then attack from above and below. The Luftwaffe suffered terrible losses this way. Confounding all of these problems was the lack of strategic vision and the Luftwaffe's penchant for exaggerating success. Goering was only vaguely committed to destroying the RAF in detail, so when his pilots routinely reported resounding victories, he got an inflated view of how the battle was going. Believing that the RAF was on its knees and growing tired of losing aircraft in deadly battles over British airfields, he redirected his force. Rather than attacking the British mechanisms of war, he would now attack the population directly and so start the Great London Blitz. The decision would cost him the battle. 
Had he concentrated his efforts on cratering airfields, knocking out radar stations, and generally wreaking havoc on fighter command directly, Goering likely could have achieved total air superiority. But instead, he chose to change objectives right in the middle of the battle and let the RAF recover. On September 7th, the first raid in the Blitz was launched. 350 bombers and 600 fighters took flight toward the city, and from the moment their bombs detonated, London would hardly pass a moment without some fire raging somewhere in the city. Goering and his Luftwaffe earnestly believed they could topple the city from the air. And oh, did they try. But for all their efforts, they lacked the equipment. Without heavy bombers, they never really had a hope of truly demolishing the city from the air. That isn't to say that Londoners did not suffer immensely at the hands of the Germans. Day in and day out, bombs fell on the city and air raid sirens called out regularly. For two months, the city trudged on, going about its business as best it could. In fact, it is often remarked that the residents of the city came to regard the Blitz almost like the weather. If the bombs fell, the bombs fell, and there simply wasn't much to be done except to seek cover. No more a hassle than seeking an umbrella in the rain. The now overused and cliched maxim, keep calm and carry on, had its origin in the Blitz. When to panic and cease functioning would have cost the nation. There would be many more aerial battles, but an absolutely massive one took place on September 15th when 300 RAF fighters converged on a German raiding force. The Germans lost 80 aircraft in this engagement alone, and it led to them almost completely abandoning daytime raids and switching to night bombing. Two days later, with it evidently clear that the RAF was as strong as ever, Operation Sea Lion was postponed indefinitely. From here, the tables would turn steadily against the Germans. British factories were churning out new aircraft, and flight schools were producing new pilots daily. The size of Fighter Command's available force actually increased by eight whole squadrons between July 1st and October 31st of 1940. For comparison, the Luftwaffe lost 2,000 aircraft in that same period and 5,000 airmen. The RAF, for its part, lost 3,000 men, and civilian casualties during the Blitz were certainly horrific by today's standards. There were 90,000 casualties, including 43,000 killed in the bombings. Still, the RAF fought courageously and, as remarked by Winston Churchill, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So much of what Winston Churchill said during the war has been immortalized since. He was a legendary orator in an age of legendary orators. What was it about the late 19th and early 20th centuries that created so many memorable speechmakers? Perhaps it was simply the invention of the radio, which gave great power to the voices of the few who could command it. Maybe it was the unity of media at the time, or maybe it really was an era of great and terrible men. Churchill was certainly one of those great men, perhaps the greatest. But he was a man of contradictions, caught between ages. He was a man of empire, in the declining days of empire. He truly believed in the civilizing force of the British Empire, but oversaw the beginning of its dismantling. He believed in democracy and liberty, and fought with tenacity against European fascists, yet considered Indian independence a damnable idea. If there was ever a man destined for greatness, though, it was Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. He was the heir of a great and proud line, dating back to the 15th century, when his ancestor, John Churchill, led British forces in the War of the Spanish Succession and became the first Duke of Marlborough. 
By the 19th century, the Churchill family was still well-placed, wealth being more heritable than hair color in that era and place. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was the prototypical Victorian aristocrat. He was a wealthy, landed gentleman who often engaged in ungentlemanly activities. He was prone to fits of rage and sexual indiscretion. Winston's mother, Jenny Jerome, was then a perfect counterpart for her wily dandy of a husband. She was an American heiress to a vast fortune with an equal appetite for luxury. They married in 1874, and shortly thereafter bore a son. Together they sought hedonistic pleasure throughout Europe and spent very little time with their new child. Little Winston was mostly raised by his nanny, Womany, not uncommon for 19th century English gentry. Despite this, Winston loved both his parents dearly and held them both in high esteem. Almost immediately, he began to develop his domineering manner, reportedly bossing around the household servants by the age of five. At age seven, he was sent away to school. He attended St. George's Ascot, a school renowned for brutal discipline in an age of cruel headmasters. There, he only grew more impertinent. He was obstinate and never broken by the cane of the headmaster, nor by the fists of older bullies. Like other short men whom we have discussed, he developed something of a complex and often found himself in fights. At age 13, he moved on to secondary education at Harrow, where he became a voracious reader but seldom read his assigned works. He loved English classics, but simply didn't have an ear for French or Latin. He found school tedious and made excitement for himself by picking fights and making trouble. He was frequently disciplined, but it hardly seemed to slow him down. He remained as belligerent as ever, and so left school with poor marks. Without the grades to attend the great universities of Oxford and Cambridge, Winston, now 17 and at his full height of 5 feet 6 inches, had to figure out what to do next. Seeing that his only great passion had been the military, he chose to take the entrance exam for the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. After three attempts, he finally passed, but only well enough to gain admission to the cavalry. Fortunately for him, he came from a family wealthy enough to support a cavalry officer, though they often harangued him for his headstrong attitude and inability to take his studies seriously. Cadet Churchill fell into life at Sandhurst quite well. Though he despised drill and physical training, he became a star polo player. He also had a fondness for military history, but, being a cavalry cadet, never had the opportunity to fully explore it. Proper military studies were reserved for the infantry officer cadets. They were the ones expected to lead the army one day. Cavalrymen were there to look good on parade and then charge to their deaths in glorious battle. Still, he was able to wrangle himself some excitement during his summer leave in 1895. The Spanish government was attempting to quell the brewing Cuban insurrection, and young Winston managed to get himself attached to a detachment fighting rebels around Havana as a correspondent. It was during this particular jaunt that he discovered his lifelong love of cigars. This was also the first time he ever came under fire, and he was ecstatic that it occurred on his 21st birthday. By 1896, he had completed his schooling at Sandhurst and had posted to India with the 4th Hussars. He found the garrison in Bangalore dreadfully boring. His fellow Hussars consumed themselves with drunken revelry and whoring, which Churchill found tedious at best. He longed for stimulation of a somewhat higher order, but made do with polo and reading the works of Edward Gibbon. He kept his intellectual pursuits to himself, though, so as not to arouse the contempt of his fellow officers, who maintained something less than rigorous intellectual standards among themselves. Fortunately, he would soon leave behind the boredom of garrison life for the excitement of putting down the Pathan Rebellion in Afghanistan. 
Once again, he traveled as a war correspondent, but he participated in the action as much as he could. In several engagements, he proved his mettle and acted courageously, even holding up the rear of an entire column single-handedly. In his reports home, he painted the British soldiery in a shining light, scarcely leaving room for accounts of the enemy's tenacity or bravery. The book he wrote about the 1897 expedition was not so generous to the Imperial troops. In particular, he criticized his commanders for their poor treatment of wounded, which won him no favors. Once again, though, this would not hold him back, and he was soon campaigning in Sudan against the Mahdi. Through family connections, he's able to get posted to the 21st Lancers as a journalist, with whom he participated in a recklessly glorious cavalry charge at Amdaran. Though the campaign was bungled, he felt he had proved his mettle and returned home to enter politics. Little did he know, fate was not done with him yet, for he lost his election, just in time for the Boer War in South Africa. So he resumed his commission and secured himself a correspondence role with the Morning Post. Upon arriving, he was almost immediately captured and placed in a prisoner of war camp. Churchill, being the pugnacious, restless man that he was, soon escaped. With essentially no idea where he was, he managed to make his way to the British consulate in Portuguese East Africa. After arriving, he telegraphed his message back to the post and became an instant celebrity, which he leveraged into a lieutenant's commission in the South African Light Horse. With them, he would see yet more action as they drove toward Pretoria, and upon arriving, found a suitably dramatic role for himself in tearing down the flag of the Transvaal Republic and hoisting the Union Jack. These heroics only inflamed his ego and fame, which he rode to electoral victory at home. He was a minister of parliament by his 26th birthday. Winston Churchill possessed many of the amoral qualities that so often inhabit successful politicians. The most obvious being that he was a great orator, but this was bolstered by others. For example, he had a penchant for taking up self-serving causes and supporting measures out of political opportunism rather than any real stance on the matter. He also felt no inclination to toe the party line if it did not benefit him personally, such as when he campaigned against his conservative party's tariff measures. Party loyalty was also of such secondary importance to him that in 1903 he crossed the aisle and joined the liberals. This move proved to be pivotal, for in 1908 he was made president of the trade board, placing him in Prime Minister Asquith's cabinet. It was also in 1908 that Churchill married his wife and lifelong love Clementine Hosier. You would be hard-pressed to find a more unlikely or unlike couple. Where Winston was raised in wealth and aristocracy, Clementine came from humble origins. Where Winston was fundamentally conservative, Clementine was very much a liberal and labor sympathizer. Their personalities differed as well, which is probably why their marriage lasted so long and worked so well. Clementine provided a salve for Winston's often caustic and abrasive personality. But she also disapproved of his many more hedonistic pastimes, like betting on horse races, smoking cigars, and generous consumption of whiskey. Most importantly, though, she's helped him to beat back the black dog of his existence, the depression that would often strike him, leaving him in despair and melancholy. Churchill probably had what today would be diagnosed as manic depression, and his mania fueled much of his work. Churchill's career in politics was really only just beginning in 1908. He would help the Liberal government pass major social reforms and take on the House of Lords. As a reward for his stalwart service, Churchill was made Home Secretary, but he found the position not quite suited to him, especially now that the Liberal Party was falling out of favor and taking heat. So in 1911, he was given a position that he could really sink his teeth into, First Lord of the Admiralty. Having always been fascinated with all things military, being in charge of the Navy was a natural fit for him. 
He approached the Navy with the same enthusiasm and naivety that he did most things in life. He was infatuated with militaria and so would take regular tours of the fleet in which he mingled with the admirals but also tried to befriend the common sailors. He would often lecture admirals and participate in live fire exercises as well. He was also quite fond of the Enchantress, the Admiralty yacht, which he took to sea as often as possible. He almost regarded it as his own personal pleasure boat and took it on his fair share of inspections throughout the Mediterranean. For all his excitement, though, he did great on the professional naval officers that he was charged with supervising. His army upbringing also imbued him with a bit of disdain for naval service. Once barking at an admiral, don't talk to me about naval tradition. It's nothing but rum, sodomy, and the lash. Needless to say, the naval leadership probably did not take kindly to this. For all of his misplaced enthusiasm and inflated sense of self, he did enact some important policies. For one, he transitioned the fleet from coal to oil and adopted new 15-inch gun battleships, which would prove crucial in the coming war with Germany. In addition, he founded the Naval Air Wing as well as the Naval Staff, both of which modernized and professionalized the service. His most famous, or perhaps notorious, actions as First Lord of the Admiralty would not come until 1915, though. The Gallipoli campaign may not have been Churchill's idea initially, but he certainly adopted it and fostered it into existence. It was the first time that he would demonstrate his penchant for ambitious military operations in what he perceived to be the enemy's soft underbelly. Well, the Dardanelles proved to be anything but a soft underbelly, and the whole campaign is most generously remembered as an exercise in tragic heroism. Less generously, it was an abject failure and complete disaster that cost Churchill the Admiralty. In an effort to redeem himself, he sought a commission in the army and found himself a colonel in command of the 6th Battalion Royal Scots Fusiliers for three months until the unit was reorganized. Upon returning to England in mid-1917, he re-entered government and became the munitions minister. After the armistice, he was promoted to war minister, which he found less than desirable now that there wasn't any actual war to fight. From there, he was transferred to the office of colonial secretary until 1921, when the liberal government was defeated and a new conservative cabinet entered office. This marked a low point in his life and career. 1921 was a hard year on Churchill. He lost his position in government, but also suffered personal hardship. His brother-in-law killed himself, his daughter died of infection, and his mother bled to death on the operating table. For a man already prone to depression, this was a dark time for him, and the black dog followed him closely. During the election campaign, he found himself stricken with appendicitis, resulting in surgery to remove the organ. In the span of only a few months, his world had collapsed around him, but he was not defeated. He would soon return to politics. In 1924, he returned to his conservative roots and was elected back to Parliament and made Chancellor of the Exchequer in Stanley Baldwin's government. He would continue to serve until 1929 when Labour won a landslide victory, once again forcing him out of office. He would spend most of the 1930s on the margins of politics and public life. He became a writer and public speaker, but he did not lose his keen eye for world affairs. While traveling across Europe to visit the battlefields of the Napoleonic era, he stopped in Germany and instantly recognized the dark forces taking hold there. He spent most of the decade warning Britons about the dangers of fascism and being summarily ignored. But as Hitler's aggressiveness increased, so did the number of listeners heeding Churchill's warnings. His warnings proved compelling enough to get him back in Parliament in 1939, at the age of 65. When Neville Chamberlain finally left office, Churchill's years of pestering and harking had paid off, and he found himself with the Prime Ministership. Unlike his predecessors, 
He offered only blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He went on in his first speech as Prime Minister. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory.